Welcome to Linda's Corner. My name is Linda Bjork. For today's episode, I will be sharing an excerpt from one of my books called You Got This, An Action Plan to Calm Fear, Anxiety, Worry, and Stress. With all the disturbing current events we're facing, people all around the world are experiencing overwhelmingly high levels of stress right now. I feel strongly about the need to help empower people to be resilient and able to handle their problems. You Got This is a thoroughly researched, easy-to-read, well-designed action plan to calm feelings of fear, anxiety, worry, and stress with a wide variety of proven cognitive behavioral therapy techniques that empower people to regain a sense of peace and control in their lives. You Got This will show you how to decrease stressors, increase coping skills, increase confidence, increase resilience, and find solutions to your problems. The book is available in paperback and ebook formats on Amazon. Today's excerpt will be the introduction for the book. Everyone has experienced fear, anxiety, worry, and or stress during their life. The following personal stories illustrate a few of the many types of events that may trigger these emotions. Example 1. Near Miss My husband Lewis is a professional pilot. Flying is his passion. It is his identity. His father was a private pilot and flew a small private plane for a business trip, so Lewis had the opportunity to begin experiencing flying from his infancy. He remembers first taking a turn at the controls at age five with his father as pilot in command in the left seat. He filled reams of paper with his childish sketches of airplanes. He built and flew model airplanes. He talked of planes and he dreamed of planes. As soon as he was old enough, he got a job to begin earning and saving for flight training. By age 17, the minimum legal age for obtaining a private pilot's license, he could proudly identify himself as a pilot. As an 18-year-old, with a year of flight experience under his belt and bursting with confidence, Lewis invited his friend Ron for an airplane ride. Although he had reasonable skill for such a young aviator, he was still a teenager, complete with teenage wisdom and teenage pride. Lewis wanted to be as impressive as possible, making a show about every slight technicality he could find with his hands, unnecessarily flitting about the instrument panel, and what he believed was an impressive display of aeronautical prowess. Eventually, he glanced over at Ron, fully expecting him to be in a rapturous state of awe. But his friend seemed equally unimpressed with the rented Cessna 172 and with Lewis's piloting skills. Rather than admiring Lewis at the controls, he seemed preoccupied with the view out the window. Disappointed, Lewis looked away, secretly wishing for some aerobatic skills. Surely Ron would be impressed if he could show him that view from upside down. Then, like thrusting a knife into Lewis's wounded pride, 
Ron commented that an airplane ride was not the sky-in-your-face wrestling match with death that Lewis had made it out to be. It was more like riding around in a car with a great view. Lewis defended his beloved plane by pointing out that a car couldn't go this fast, referring to the airspeed indicator's blistering 105 knots, while secretly wishing they were flying an F-16. As they were flying along the Wasatch Mountain Range, Lewis asked Ron if he would like to go up the canyon and inspect the snow conditions at Snowbird Ski Resort. Ron nodded. Surely this ought to be impressive, Lewis thought. Somewhere in the back of his mind, Lewis began to hear the admonitions of his father about the inherent danger of flying around these mountains. But he couldn't think of anything in particular, and he reasoned that he could always turn around. Besides, they were almost at 6,500 feet high. What could go wrong? Snowbird's ski resort was near the end of Little Cottonwood Canyon. The canyon terminates in a beautiful glacier-formed basin with a floor of 9,000 feet, ringed on three sides with towering rocky cliffs. It didn't take long before Lewis realized his mistake. The mountain was rising more steeply than the plain could climb, and the canyon walls were too narrow for him to turn around. By choosing to turn up the canyon, he had put their lives in danger, and he didn't see any way out. To make matters worse, they now penetrated a scattered veil of clouds. Lewis felt like a blindfolded prisoner facing the firing squad. He couldn't calm his rapid breathing and felt little beads of sweat begin to break out on his forehead. He focused as best as he could on simply flying the plane. He kept the wings level and maintained his heading. He understood the technical balance of the plane's limitations. By flying slower, he could optimize the plane's rate of climb, but if he slowed too much, the plane would stall, meaning the wings would lose their power of lift and the plane would plummet to the ground. His choices were limited to crashing forward, sideways, or straight down. He wondered how it would be. Would he have time to react? Or would their bubbles suddenly burst with an explosion of rock and charred aluminum? Would they make it to the end of the canyon? Or scrape and tumble along the sides? He considered telling Ron, but thought maybe the morticians would prefer him looking peaceful. His lips began to quiver, and inside he began to pray. Ron, on the other hand, was completely oblivious to their dire circumstances. He had no actual flight experience, but he had seen plenty of movies and assumed that at any chosen moment, Lewis could simply turn the plane straight up and it would blast skyward with the power of a rocket. Then they could just loop around and take him back to the airport. Therefore, with eyes watching through the window, he commented on the intermittent views through the clouds. Wow, it's really neat in these clouds. And then, oh, look. I can see the cliffs out this side of the plane. Lewis's head jerked that way in time to see the cliffs passing eerily off the right wingtip and banked slightly left until the cliffs faded away in a cloudy gloom. We're dead, Lewis thought as he watched the altimeter just passing 8,000 feet. 
breaks in the clouds were less frequent, and he had no idea exactly where they were. The cliffs to either side were invisible because of the clouds, and the boxed end of the canyon waited somewhere ahead. Lewis continued to fly the plane, trying to hold that razor-thin balance of flying as slowly and climbing as steeply as he could without stalling the plane. When he heard the stall horn blare the warning of an impending stall, he had no choice but to slightly lower the nose of the plane. He knew it would be any minute now. Then Ron commented that he saw skiers below. Lewis looked out and noticed the wires of the Snowbird aerial tram go by. They were close. They had reached the ski resort, which signified that they were now near the end of the canyon. That meant that cliffs were now in front of them, as well as to the sides, and they could no longer go forward. This is it, Lewis thought. He was in agony, waiting to be hit, flinching at the thoughts of crashing into the cold granite rock. He banked hard left into the clouds. It very well might mean dying now, but he decided he'd rather risk hitting the side of the canyon trying to escape than continuing forward into what he knew was certain death. No more waiting. It's over. He could feel the unseen canyon walls rushing the airplane as he blindly turned toward the invisible granite cliff. He made no attempt to maintain altitude. Just make it quick, he thought. To his utter surprise and relief, there was no crashing impact. The airplane simply turned around and descended out of the cloud layer. He did not understand until years later that by slowing the plane to 59 knots in a dismal effort to climb, it also meant that the plane could turn much tighter than it could if it was going faster. And... By waiting until he reached the basin, the canyon walls were just wide enough for a miraculous escape. Lewis could have cried. Ron, on the other hand, completely oblivious to their phenomenal good luck, continued to comment on the beautiful view. The mouth of the canyon, now ahead of them, gleamed with sunlight splashing behind the breaks in the overcast sky. They poured out of the canyon and headed across the valley to the municipal airport. Lewis didn't want to fly anymore. He wanted to be on the ground. He wanted to stop shaking. They landed and taxied to their parking spot. Since Lewis hadn't told Ron about their brush with death and his own stupidity that had placed them in this situation, he thought he could simply pretend that this was all in a day's work. No biggie, it was just a normal flight. But as he stepped outside the plane, his knees buckled, and he collapsed like a soggy towel on the left main gear. Ron, completely surprised, said, Are you okay? Example number two. Dreaded phone calls. When I was in my early 20s, I was serving as a secretary in a women's organization for my church. Part of my duties included calling people and making appointments so that the presidency, including myself, could visit with them and get to know and befriend them, and to ascertain needs and see how we could help and support. 
I didn't know most of the people on this long list of names. And the idea of calling these strangers filled me with anxiety. I didn't know what to say. I didn't know how they would feel about my request to be visited by strangers. I was terrified of rejection. Everything about those phone calls filled me with dread, worry, and anxiety. We did our weekly visits each Tuesday, and although the visits were scary for me, at least I had someone with me, so I wasn't alone. If I didn't know what to say, certainly my companion would know the right words. But I carried the weight of responsibility for those phone calls all by myself. Each Tuesday night when we completed our visits, I came home with my heart and mind filled with dread that I had to make more phone calls to set up appointments for the following week. I worried about it on Wednesday. I worried about it on Thursday. I worried about it on Friday. I worried about it on Saturday. And by then it was getting worse because of course I hadn't actually called anybody and now the deadline was approaching. I worried about it on Sunday and finally pulled out my list of names. Fear and anxiety filled my heart as I called the first person. More often than not, no one answered, or if someone was home, she rejected my request, whether for scheduling conflicts or simply not being interested. Then I had to go through the process all over again, until I either succeeded in getting to appointments, or I gave up in frustration and failure. If that was the case, then I tried again on Monday. On Tuesday, we did our visits. Sometimes we had a nice visit. Sometimes we had an awkward visit. And sometimes they stood us up and weren't home. But either way, when the evening was over, the process started all over again. Example 3. Granola Days my husband was training and preparing for his dream job as a professional pilot. The process is lengthy, intensive, and expensive. We had only been married a few years, and I had recently quit my job so I could be at home to care for our new baby. That change in employment status cut our income by about two-thirds. Lewis was working as a flight instructor, and the pay was dismal. Depending on his student workload, he brought home anywhere from $400 to $800 each month. This was in the early 1990s, so you'd have to account for inflation, but it was a pitifully small amount. We barely had enough to pay our rent. And on the good months, we could also pay our utilities and gas for the car. There was no money for food or diapers, and there was no money for the additional training, flight time, and ratings that Lewis needed in order to meet the minimum requirements to be hired by the airlines. We were stuck in a place where merely surviving was a challenge, and progress seemed impossible. A few months prior, my parents had the foresight or inspiration to give each of their children some basic food staples as their Christmas gift to each of us. Because of their generosity, we had some wheat, 
rolled oats, sugar, salt, and oil in our pantry. When we ran out of food in the fridge, I looked over these items and wondered what to do with them. I didn't have a clue what to do with the wheat. I didn't have a wheat grinder or grain mill to make it into flour. I looked at the rolled oats. I knew how to make oatmeal, but I had grown up eating oatmeal, or mush as we called it, every day of my life, and I hated it every day of my life. My mother made either oatmeal or cracked wheat mush each morning and dished it into bowls. Each day I would rush to the table first so that I could choose the smallest bowl. I vowed that when I was an adult and living on my own, I would never eat mush again. So even though our options were severely limited, I just couldn't bring myself to make oatmeal mush. I had recently learned how to make granola. So, with the rolled oats, sugar, salt, oil, and a few additional ingredients that I borrowed from my mother, I made granola. Each day for months, we had granola for breakfast, we had granola for lunch, and we had granola for dinner. It was all we had to eat. Today, we call that time the granola days. I took a small job cleaning for an elderly couple a few hours a week so I could earn enough money for diapers and milk. It was one of the few options where I could take my infant son with me. I was stressed, discouraged, and worried about having enough money to pay the bills. If we ever had an extra nickel, it had to be saved to pay for Lewis's training so that he could eventually get a better paying job. One day, I learned some news from one of my neighbors that was the straw that broke the camel's back. She was a young expectant mother. At age 14, she had moved in with her boyfriend, and now, at age 17, she was expecting their second child. She was complaining about her financial woes. They were receiving assistance from the government, help with housing, WIC, and so on. She said that it was so hard to make ends meet when they only received $700 of cash each month plus food. As she continued to expound on her distress, I realized that between the cash, the food, and the other benefits, they were bringing in two to three times the resources that we were living off of. Discouragement and depression overwhelmed me. My husband and I were both college graduates, and yet we were significantly worse off financially than a teenage mother on welfare. We weren't receiving any government assistance. We weren't receiving any assistance from our church or our families either. Neither set of our parents were wealthy, and we didn't want to bother them with our problems anyway. We actually hadn't told anyone about our extreme poverty. We were too embarrassed and ashamed. Besides that, we wanted to be able to do it by ourselves. The whole situation was demoralizing and humiliating. We were barely hanging on. And then, our landlady informed us that she was raising the rent. Fear, anxiety, worry, and panic are emotions that most people are familiar with to some degree or another. While slightly different, 
Each of these emotions are related and connected by the presence of fear. Fear is an unpleasant emotion caused by the belief that someone or something is dangerous, likely to cause pain, or a threat. Panic is an intense feeling of overpowering extreme anxiety or terror, while anxiety is an unpleasant but more vague sense of apprehension. Worry has a couple of definitions that may seem unrelated at first, but they are all connected. First of all, worry means a state of anxiety and uncertainty over actual or potential problems. It implies concern mixed with fear. Worry can also mean to tear at, gnaw on, pull at, or fiddle with continually. A dog can worry a bone by continually gnawing at it. You can worry the knot at the end of a rope by continually fiddling with it and perhaps fraying it. It has to do with the idea of touching or disturbing something repeatedly. Worry is not a fleeting emotion. It tends to be nagging, persistent, and incessant. Some synonyms for worry include to annoy, plague, pester, or torment. Any of these forms of fear can cause stress. Stress is a state of mental or emotional strain or tension resulting from adverse or very demanding circumstances. Fear arises with the threat of harm, either physical, emotional, or psychological, and it can come from either real or imagined circumstances. These unpleasant emotions can arise from an imminent physical threat, like Lewis's experience flying up the canyon, or they may arise from a perceived emotional and mental threat, like my assignment to call strangers on the phone. Work and financial concerns are some of the most common stressors that cause worry and anxiety. Everyday life gives many opportunities to experience worry, anxiety, panic, fear, and stress. The purpose of this book is to share coping skills to effectively deal with these challenges. As we learn to calm and manage those feelings and emotions, it increases our mental, emotional, and physical well-being and improves our quality of life. I hope you enjoyed this excerpt from my book, You Got This, An Action Plan to Calm Fear, Anxiety, Worry, and Stress. I feel strongly about the need to help empower people to be able to be resilient and able to handle their problems. So I will continue sharing excerpts from the book in other episodes of Linda's Corner. In closing, I'd like to share a quote from Sabdadi Muherjee, an official reviewer from Reedsy.com. She said, I loved it. You Got This is an impressively researched self-help guide with a 30-day plan to reduce anxiety and cope with stress, written in simple language. If you're serious about taking control of your life and coping with anxiety and stress, 
This book is for you. See you next time on Linda's Corner.